So I don't know if you guys saw this week that the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary released a 71-page report on its history of racism and slavery. Um, and Ryan and I worked for the Southern Baptist Convention, and I attended Southern Baptist churches for a long time, and I have to confess that I never went, realized where the name Southern Baptist came from because I just thought, it's Baptist who like chicken fried steak, you know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and then... Uh, I realized that, you know, we were founded because in 1845 or 1846, we split from the Northern Baptists over the issue of slavery. And so this report was very interesting to read. Um, I have some perspective on it, and it's relevant to our discussion this morning, so I want to share a little bit about it with you. It was commissioned last year by Albert Muller, who is the president of the seminary in Kentucky, and there's also a seminary here in Fort Worth. So here are some of the highlights. The seminary's founding faculty all held slaves and earned their fortunes from slave labor. They, uh, the faculty says slavery was righteous and God-ordained. There's multiple examples of the faculty fighting back against social and political change that was happening. They fought to preserve slaveholding when Abraham Lincoln was elected. They supported the restoration of white rule in the South during Reconstruction. And they worked to curtail civil liberties for black people. The school complied with integration, but they largely supported a moderate approach to advance civil rights, and they wanted it to be led by white people. Um, they were uncomfortable with the civil rights movement as a whole. So in 1961, Dr. King was actually invited to speak at the seminary, and he spoke, and so many churches withdrew their support for the seminary that the, they issued an apology, and they said, we'll never invite anyone who's politically divisive to speak here ever again. Um, so right after that, the history of the report just kind of ends in 1964 with one of the faculty saying, oh yeah, a bunch of us went and joined a march with Dr. King in Frankfurt. The end. Um, so it's slightly fascinating to me that they would write such a detailed report about it because having worked for them, it seems entirely in character. If you don't know what's going on, you just write a report. Um, but it concludes really abruptly, and it doesn't draw any connection between the history and the state of things currently. Um, Albert Moeller said in the summary, we must repent of our own sins. We cannot repent for the dead. We must, however, offer full lament for a legacy we inherit and a story that's now ours. So he doesn't elaborate on the story that's now theirs, and he mostly frames the report as an historical investigation of the origins of a group that's been on the right track since 1964. <laughs> okay, but the story keeps going, doesn't it? In 1968, the same year that Dr. King was assassinated, there were leaders who were discouraged with the liberal direction, such as it was, of the SBC, and they began to work toward a conservative resurgence. Um, and that still affects the denomination today. Um, in 2016, Southern Baptists were the denomination who most strongly supported Donald Trump. Um, and as recently as 2017, they struggled to pass a resolution denouncing white supremacy, although it did ultimately pass. So I'm sharing this with you not to tear down the SBC, okay? Because if anything, I think a similar report could have been written by a lot of other denominations. I was looking at it. Yeah, you're nodding your head. Um, so maybe not the same history, right? But similar and with a similar part in systemic oppression, right? This is all of our history. So they're trying to acknowledge the skeletons that are in their closet, right? But they're kind of ignoring the skeletons that are dancing all around out of the closet in front of them. Um, they use the words lament and repentance, but they get a lot, little lost in repentance and lament as a community. So I don't think they're alone, right? I struggle with this. I'm guessing you guys probably do too. 
we have a remarkable ability because of our individualist culture, right, to admit the sins of groups we're a part of or to point out the sins of other groups, um, but we're able to distance ourselves as individuals. We're not like that. Our group's not like that. I'm not like that. Um, As we've talked about lament, we've talked about our own individual lament and our individual response to individuals or groups. But today, we're going to talk about lamenting as a community. So one roadblock to communal lament, as in the example of the SBC, is prosperity. The prosperity that came from slavery and the power that came from political power. The prosperity that came from political power. When we prosper from systems of oppression, we become blind to them. We trust that our prosperity will continue. And more than that, we trust that it should continue. Um, One of the lines in the report said that God has ordained slavery to continue. (laughs) Um, And we're losing it because we've just abused it. But otherwise, that's the way it should be. Um, So we trust that our systems are right. And when we do begin to see the systems, we often struggle to know how to lament because we struggle to see ourselves as individuals. Um, We see ourselves as individuals with the ability to distance ourselves, and we don't feel like we have the ability to change a system, right? Um, We struggle to know how to live within our own prosperity while at the same time fighting against systems of oppression. So what are some examples that you guys can think of where communal lament might be necessary? Say the question again. What are some examples where you think lamenting as a community might be necessary? So one example would be racism and slavery, our history of that in America. What else? I would say wealth. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we, you know, that, that whole racism thing really hits me because my father went to World War II and Korean War. And he got the VA benefit. He was able to go on to be a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. And so I was raised in a class and he was able to go to college and things like that. Well, African American uh, soldiers, while they could, in essence, get the VA benefit, many of the colleges wouldn't open to them. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't make advantage of it. So people of my father's generation, men and women of color, their children didn't have the same advantage as I had, even though they served in the same war, yeah. uh, even though they had all that. And so I am middle class today, mm-hmm. largely because my father was middle class, mm-hmm. and largely because my uh, friends of color didn't have that opportunity at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I read that in and I am here as a direct result of a racist. It's not just racist, it's classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's not just that. Yeah. Yep, that's true. John? What troubles me deeply is uh, all of the treaties with all the Indian tribes yeah. are broken. Yeah. So like, we have access to all of those prairie lands and all those mountains for all the money and all the minerals. Yeah. And I have a friend uh, that lives in Alaska, and uh, I've been there a while, and he said that um, it's a, there are some natives there, first, whatever, what do you call it, first stuff that people are starting to And uh, so the bad supposed to take care of them, but they're doing a sloppy job, and they're just uh, rampant uh, 
pathologism and, and suicide and mm-hmm. illnesses. And um, it just tears the heart up. I would say um, how the church has not done well with um, the LGBTQ plus community mm-hmm. and talking about sexuality and yeah. And the margins. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, this is really not the beginning this year, but <clears throat> the church is not being a safe place for so many people to be who they are and be real with what they're struggling with. And so this idea that you have to put on the mask to go to church, and I think that that vibe is just has hurt so many people that really needed to be in a place where they feel safe where they're at. Mm-hmm. I think that will mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. also thank the church on, uh, when it comes to missions mm-hmm. and uh, people in the world who've been hurt by churches teaching a doctor what they I read a did y'all see that article on NPR about this like Bible that they have on display that they cut out 90% of the Old Testament and half of the New Testament and made it into a Bible for people to use in mission efforts with slaves and I just like whoa because they didn't want um, anybody to revolt. <laughs> That's a, yep. So we're in Lamentations 4 today. Tommy read it for us. And Lamentations 4 is the only chapter that doesn't speak to or petition God. Um, And it doesn't hold out any hope that they can be saved. So it involves overlapping themes of city lament, uh, which is the they're lamenting the ongoing destruction of the city that's real and still happening. Um, The funeral dirge, which is the painful history that led to the current situation. And communal lament that reminds us that sin is not individualistic or it's a mix of our individual sin and our sin as communities. Um, So in the beginning of the chapter, we see a number of examples of how the city of Jerusalem has fallen, right? Uh, Which is the city limit. So the finest gold has become dull. The sacred gemstones are scattered in the street. The people who once ate rich foods now beg in the street for anything they can get. And those who wore the finest clothes now search the garbage dumps for food. And, of course, the boiling your kids. I mean, it's really dark, okay? So very, very dark. Um, So why did this happen? There's a funeral dirge because things have happened that can't be changed now. The city has actually been destroyed. So in verse 13, it says it happens because it happened because of the sins of their prophets and the sins of their priests who defiled the city by shedding innocent blood, which is what we talked about in the previous chapters. The, they didn't listen to Jeremiah. They listened to the prophets and priests who would tickle their ears, right? Um, and I have to say that I always interpreted these things as like a terrible consequence, like behave correctly or God will take away your prosperity, right? Do the right thing or God will take away your prosperity. If you have prosperity... It's because you're doing something that God wants you to do, okay? So in a way, it is a consequence that those things are being taken away from them. But there are other ways of looking at it, right? Um, God is more interested in justice than in prosperity. Um, He knows that changing their systems of oppression and protecting the innocent is more valuable than protecting prosperity. He's more concerned with how they've treated the innocent than whether they get to keep their sacred gold. Um, prosperity doesn't save them or excuse them or insulate them from the need to be part of the world and to protect their innocence, to protect the innocent. God doesn't value that above other things. 
So in verse 17, we transition to a first-person voice of communal lament. Our eyes failed, looking for help. We start to hear corporate responsibility and corporate sin. In verse 19, if we fled to the mountains, they found us. If we hid in the wilderness, they were waiting for us there, right? No one's saying, well, I wasn't the one not listening. I was listening. They're saying it was us. It was all of us. In verse 21, we see that other nations who might rejoice in the fall of Jerusalem are warned that they also will have to drink from the cup of the Lord's anger. So again, the other nations can't say, well, not us. It's you, but not us. And overall, there's a picture of lament continuing and expanding throughout the different dimensions of an entire group and throughout the the groups that are affected by that group. So no one person can distance themselves from what they've done or what has happened. All right, so my lingering question with Lamentations has been, where do I, as a person of privilege, fit into this story, right? We read Psalms 21, and I rarely feel like dogs are circling me. I, well, I do often feel like boiling my children, but that's not because of lament. (laughs) Something different. So, lament is a natural expression for oppressed people, but I'm not usually oppressed. So, where do we go? What do we do here? Um, The language I want to use this morning is this idea of cognitive dissonance. And what that is, is basically our brains want to simplify the world, and so we have this worldview. And when we're presented with information that contradicts that worldview, our brains are like, what's happening? And that's dissonance. And it's awkward, and it causes anxiety, and it gives us tension, and um, we don't really know what to do with it. And so I was... Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Um, I wanted to think of a, a way to let you have a physical feeling of what lament, or not lament, cognitive dissonance can feel in our brains. And so, and I thought of one, and if you are a music person, you can thank the boys in my high school band for this. Are you ready? Okay, so this is going to give you a physical feeling, if it bothers you, it might not, a physical feeling of what cognitive dissonance feels like in our brain. All right, so, the people of Lamentation, you feel that dissonance, you're like, ah, finish the scale, it's not resolved. Okay. So, I'm not going to finish it for you. Um, The people of Lamentations thought wealth and security would protect them. They built up their bank accounts. They built this giant wall. They were like, we're good. Well, God was like, no, you're not. So, their worldview was that these things would protect us. And God presented them, obviously, with information and evidence that that was contrary. Um, So, they had that dissonance. Cognitive dissonance persists even today for us. Perhaps you felt it when Sarah was talking. White culture leads us to be rugged individuals who lose the ability to really understand what communal problems or blame means. It's why the simple phrase, Black Lives Matter, gets under the skin of so many. When the term white privilege or even white people is used, many of us feel immediately defensive because we're not used to thinking in terms of us, and we certainly don't think in terms of group responsibility for suffering. Like Sarah said, this leaves us unwilling and or unable to have honest conversations about privilege and systems of oppression and our place in them. 
Just like the people of Lamentations, we thought the world was one way, and we spent a significant amount of time and energy building up our wealth and building walls to protect our privilege. There's suffering in the world. Us and people who look like us with gender, political, and economic power have benefited from it and caused it. What do we do now? What do we do when God shows us these two competing ideas? So we're standing at a crossroads with this cognitive dissonance, and we can choose two, two options. The first option, and this is the one that we're really good at, is we resolve it ourselves. Bah! Finish it, right? Resolve it. So we do this in two ways. The first way is we don't even see the suffering. We're blind to it. This is a function of the systems of oppression. Some people suffer, others benefit. Those that benefit are blind to it. An example of this is that when I was growing up, all of the media that I consumed, TV, movies, books, had white people. Very rarely did I see people of color. And it wasn't until I was older and I started listening to people of color that I realized that representation in media is a problem. They were suffering. People, there's children of color that think that they're ugly or that they're not valuable because they never see themselves represented anywhere. And that's suffering that I was blind to because my privilege protected me. The people of Lamentations didn't heed God's warnings. They kept building their kingdom. They treated Jeremiah poorly. They threw him in a well. They chose blindness. How aware are we of the systemic suffering of those around us? I wanted us to think about this idea of regularly scheduled programming. That for us, many of us, maybe not all, but many, life has gone basically according to plan. We graduated from high school, we went to college, we got married, we had kids, we have houses, dogs, the whole nine yards. For us, suffering is often an interruption. It is an exception and not the rule. Because of this, I think it's hard for us to hear suffering. And in our privilege, we, are, we choose blindness to it. We, oh, I can't get on social media. I can't read that news article. I don't want to see it. I just need to be, I have to focus on my own life. The second way that we resolve our dissonance is we see the suffering, but we, we think of a way to um, deny responsibility for it. The privileged people of strong Jerusalem followed leaders who exploited and oppressed people. Maybe those leaders used language that inspired fear to justify hurting people, which might sound familiar today. Um, today, I think there's lots of ways that we avoid um, taking responsibility for suffering. And, okay, so question and answer time. <laughs> um, so Sarah asked, what are some things that communally we need to lament for? And my question is, how do you, how do you think that we like, do the mental gymnastics to avoid taking responsibility for those things? So, how do we do those mental gymnastics? Do you need an example? Here's an example. Victim blaming. Like, oh, poor people are poor because they want to be poor. They're lazy. There's no, there's no systemic oppression there. They just want to be lazy. So it's victim blaming. That's one way. What are some other ways? That was our grandparents' actions. Yes. That was their generation. Yes. It's all in the past. Yes. Even our Western culture is individualistic, so when we see 
systemic problems, we can't trace that back to our own individual choices, right? So like mandatory sentencing laws or different um, practices or policies within the criminal justice system that have disproportionately affected people of color. Or say like, well, I didn't vote for that law, or I'm not an attorney, I'm not a judge, or you know, I'm not the one prosecuting those people, and so it's easy for us to create distance or, or think that it's, it's not my problem to solve, or it's not even a problem that I help create. Um, yeah, I mean, like my example, I didn't know about something. I was just like, you know, my mistake. I mean, I was very, like, I wasn't responsible for anything that these little things that happened, or the mm-hmm. way that this message has been used, but I didn't know about it. He said that people of privilege suffering is the exception, not the rule. And I think it's really easy to notice something, feel that dissonance, feel like something needs to be done, but just because it's difficult or I don't, I'm ignorant of what to do, mm-hmm. I can just get back in the, in the zone of, mm-hmm. of life and just press on and just forget again. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to. It's hard to either know what to do or I don't like feeling this way, so I'd like to just Yeah, that's good. I think, too, it's comparing others who may be suffering to our own life experience. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm able to take care of this. If not following that situation, then this is what I would do, and it would be okay. Mm-hmm. And so we don't see their environment, we don't see their context as to why they're in a situation. Um, years ago, uh, in the 80s, we helped with a, um, a Christmas gathering of homeless mothers. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I had ever encountered the concept that these women are blameless in their homelessness. Mm-hmm. They're homeless because their husbands, who were the breadwinner, they were never able to be trained to have any kind of outside work. Their husbands were jerks, left them and the kids, and so now, without any job skills whatsoever, they're homeless, mm-hmm. not by any fault of their own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, immediately rationalize, well, why don't they go to college? Why don't they go to trade school? It's well, that they easy. can, yeah. you know? But we try to put our, our context on their context. Yes, that's good. That's good. Matthew Vines is, um, he calls himself a gay evangelical. He grew up in the evangelical. And um, someone asked him once about systemic oppression and evangelical's response to it. And I thought his answer was very fair. He said um, that the white American church is really good at one-on-one interactions with marginalized people. Um, but we lack the proper understanding of history and systems to admit or acknowledge the role that we play in their marginalization in the first place. And I think we see this around Christmas where churches that are overwhelmingly like against people at the border and like against Black Lives Matter, they do food baskets, right? They do coat drives. Um, and so there's this, this, well, we care about you, but then there's all of these other things that are keeping people down and we're not seeing it. And I thought that was a really fair kind of um, definition. So, okay, so... The, we're standing at the crossroads of cognitive dissonance that we're good people but somehow we are responsible for suffering and the first way we take care of that is we resolve it ourselves and I think we can all see that it's not very Jesus-like um, so the second option that I want to propose to you today is lament 
Lament is a natural response to oppression. Individually, we've all had times of sorrow and lament, but what does lament have to do with us collectively as people who are overwhelmingly people of privilege? Um, you might notice today that I'm wearing fat cloth. Kind of, yeah. Um, the back is kind of fierce. In the Old Testament, sackcloth is used for several different reasons. Um, one of them is lament. Prophets would put on sackcloth as a representation of um, God's sorrow and um, his, like, they would wear it as a way to say, like, hey, this something bad is happening, and y'all are continuing to pretend like it's not bad, and I'm going to wear this sackcloth to remind us. And um, I think what I want, what I take away from that, is that they chose to put it on. It was not something that God forced upon them. Um, in the text, what we see are people who were formerly privileged showing remorse for their blindness and recognizing their active participation in what has happened. They're not resolving the cognitive dissonance. Instead, they're sitting in it. This, like Kara talked about last week, I think like the cognitive dissonance of God's mercy and judgment. The cognitive dissonance of thinking that you're safe and in your wealth and your prosperity, but knowing that you're not. So instead of trying to do the mental gymnastics of resolving those things, or, um, well, they can't be blind to it anymore. God kind of forced that. He took that option away. Um, they're sitting in cognitive dissonance and using it, and lament is a natural outpouring for that. So, for us, I think that this means that we recognize that our privilege functionally blinds us to how systems benefit us and oppress others. Sackcloth, and as an extension lament, is an itchy, uncomfortable reminder to not put our hope in those earthly kingdoms or build walls around our privilege to protect it. We must face our dissonance head-on and not run from it. I propose that we as privileged people use lament as a spiritual discipline to practice this idea of humbling ourselves by choosing to sit in cognitive dissonance instead of resolve it. We choose to see the ways that we hurt other people. We acknowledge and mourn the ways that we have oppressed others. We see suffering, and we don't try to fix it. There is a time for action, but we have to learn how to lament first. So how do we use lament as a spiritual discipline? I think the first thing is that we recognize our wealth and our privilege mean nothing to God. Even Jesus, that was one of the core, I feel like, tenets of his message. We need to be careful to look and see and hear suffering even when we don't want to, because not looking is a privilege. When we enter into, suffer, enter into suffering with others, choose to suffer, to be uncomfortable, to be humble, to take down the walls around our privilege, to sit in the dissonance, it sounds terrible, right? Why would we do that? Because when you look at the arc of the Bible, God works almost exclusively in suffering. There is no story in the Bible where someone went through their life with their regularly scheduled programming and died in their sleep at a ripe old age, and God used it. I can't think of one. After all, 2,000 years ago, while the Roman emperors and rulers were counting their money and resting easy in their political power, while hypocritical religious leaders were scheming to maintain their control over people using fear and legalism, while the rich ate and drank and partied well into the evening, while the privileged sipped their proverbial Starbucks blind to the world's suffering, in a forgotten back alley, 
in a stable that was stinky and dark, the air thick with the present reality of pain and poverty, God did something miraculous. People of privilege, I interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to give you good news. (laughs) God does miraculous things in the midst of suffering, and we do not have to be left out. We are not enslaved to continuing to build earthly kingdoms that protect our privilege, keep us too busy and blind to the miracles of the kingdom that God is bringing to earth, but the cost is steep. We trade in our privilege and our riches and our twin idols of security and comfort for sackcloth and mourning and dissonance, but we gain our humanity, and we gain an opportunity to participate in bringing God's kingdom here on earth. To be clear, we do not don sackcloth and practice lament as martyrs so that we can feel good about feeling bad. We do so as an itchy, lingering reminder to ourselves that we are part of systems that benefit us and harm others. In a world that gives us gold stars for our white skin, our knowledge of the English language, our citizenship in one of the world's richest countries, our financial stability, we wear sackcloth as a reminder that those gold stars are meaningless. We do so as a reminder to be interrupted and present with the suffering of the marginalized and under-resourced across the world. Not that we co-opt their suffering, but that we see it, hear it, and stand with them against it. People of privilege, I interrupt your regularly scheduled programming to give you good news. Lament is a gift God has given us. Let us learn to do it well. <laughs>